This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hi, I'm Jamie Boston. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss rethinking the concept of obesity with internist and obesity medicine physician, Dr. Sasha High. We'll discover how to fix our diminishing attention spans with researcher, Dr. David Nelson, ND. We'll learn what to do if you're too gazzy with dietitian Shauna Lindzen. And lastly, we'll find out about pelvic floor dysfunction with rehabilitation scientist, Dr. Sinead Dufour. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot. Up to an hour after their hearts had stopped, some patients revived by cardiopulmonary resuscitation, CPR, had clear memories afterward of experiencing death and had brain patterns while unconscious linked to thought and memory, report investigators in the Journal of Resuscitation. In the study led by researchers at NYU Grossman School of Medicine, in cooperation with 25 mostly U.S. and British hospitals, some survivors described lucid death experiences that occurred while they were seemingly unconscious. The patients who survived recalled some degree of consciousness during CPR not captured by standard measures. The feel of a cat's fur can reveal some information. But seeing the feline provides critical details. Is it a house cat or a lion? While the sound of fire crackling may be ambiguous, its scent confirms burning wood. Our senses synergize to give a comprehensive understanding, particularly when individual signals are subtle. The collective sum of biological inputs can be greater than their individual contributions. Robots tend to follow a more straightforward addition. But Penn State researchers now have harnessed the biological concept for application in artificial intelligence to develop the first artificial multisensory integrated neuron. When you're under stress, your brain may release its own cannabinoid molecules to calm you down, activating the same receptors in your brain as THC derived from cannabis plants. But the brain activity patterns and neural circuits that are regulated by these brain-derived cannabinoid molecules are not well known. A new Northwestern medicine study in mice has discovered a key emotional brain center, the amygdala, releases endogenous cannabinoid molecules under stress. And these molecules dampen the incoming stress alarm from the hippocampus, a memory and emotion center in the brain. These results provide more support for the hypothesis that these endogenous cannabinoid molecules are a body's natural coping response to stress. I'll be joined by Dr. Sasha High in a moment, but first, a little bit of business. OMTO is back. OMTO is a yogic celebration of the winter solstice, a full day of specially curated and themed yoga classes led by the most dynamic and popular instructors from the top studios in Toronto. Hundreds of yogis from across the GTA will come to partake in this one-of-a-kind yoga experience and practice in unique theme classes, nourishing your body and mind at a time of year when we need it the most. Guests can reserve their space online in advance. There'll be music, contests, 
free giveaways, and special offers for all. A portion of the proceeds from ticket sales will go to the Scott Mission. OMTO, December 17th. Save the date! Dr. Sasha High is an internist and obesity medicine physician who runs Canada's leading medical weight management program for women. She's an international speaker, social media educator. Her hashtag is SashaHighMD on all platforms and host of the High on Life podcast. Welcome to the show, Sasha. How are you? Thanks so much for having me, Jamie. I'm great. Thanks. So off the top of every single show that we do, I give my little origin story of losing, you know, 52 pounds when I was in my late 30s. And what I say is, you know, if I can do it, anybody can, except that may not be true, right? For for some people. And and I've had to sort of rethink that whole thing, right? You know, I may have to change the tagline at the the top of my show because you're you're going to tell us today that it isn't so easy for everybody, right? Well, I happy that you're recognizing that, to be honest with you, because I think that every individual is different and we don't always realize um, what some people are up against in terms of the different causes of weight gain and weight dysregulation. So I'm glad you're seeing that. That's great. So what are the factors that contribute to obesity? Yeah, so like so many things in medicine, obesity is what we call multifactorial. So it's not ever like one single thing. To start, we know that about 40 to 70% of our body weight is genetically determined. Now, here's what I don't want people to hear, because I think when we say genetically determined, people are like, oh, well, does that mean like I have no choice? I have no choice in the matter, so what's the point of even trying? And the answer to that is no. So genes are not going to dictate our weight, but they do give us a range of possibility. And so the analogy is like, Our genes are like a deck of cards. We don't get to choose the hand that we're dealt. We do get to choose how we play that hand and what we do about it. Do you play poker? Because I play poker. I don't play poker. (laughs) Okay, so so what you've you've just done is you've done sort of a a poker analogy, right? Like, you don't always get pocket aces. And I can tell you, I was not dealt pocket aces. Like, in terms of my genetic makeup, you know, the worst hand you can get is 2-7 offsuit. I'm somewhere in the middle. I'm probably like uh, 8-9 of clubs where, like, it could go either way. Could be a winner, could be a loser, but I have to work at it. Sorry, go on. Exactly, yeah. I, I can like relate to Uno. That's where I'm at right now. So. Okay. So there's genetics and, you know, strong predisposition for certain people. That's why we look at family history. But then there's, you know, um, medications they may have, might have been prescribed for another condition. Like if they put on high dose steroids, you know, that increases appetite and cortisol and can affect weight, certain birth control, diabetes medications. Then there's the environment that we live in. How walkable is your neighborhood? Simple things like that. How much access do you have to fresh food? And is it affordable for you? And then there's all of the hormones that are involved in our appetite and, you know, how much we crave food. And that's going to differ by individuals. And so we're really talking about a multifactorial disease that isn't the same for everyone. And that's kind of what makes it challenging in terms of treatment as well. Right. I would add another factor, and that is where you are in your life, right? Like we had three kids and, and, you know, we're almost empty nesters now. But I can tell you when they were young and you're shuttling them here and there and you're making one dinner for them and one dinner for you and you're eating off their plate, all of a sudden it becomes a lot harder to maintain, like to find the time to do what's necessary to live healthy. I think that's a factor, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I've got three young kids right now and I know I'm in the trenches, so I can relate to a lot of parents that are in that position. Okay. So in preparing for this interview, uh, the proposition was put forward that we should conceive of obesity as a disease. Mm -hmm. And I want to explore that. How would you define it? And, And if so, is it a disease of the mind or is it a physical disease or is it both? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so 
I think we need to cover some definitions yeah. to understand this. So disease, the word disease means it impairs normal functioning and there's characteristic signs and symptoms, okay? So if we look at obesity and the way that the medical community defines obesity is it's abnormal or excess adipose tissue or fat on your body that has accumulated and is causing health problems, i.e. it's impairing normal functioning. And does it have characteristic signs and symptoms? Well, actually it does. And we can actually look at almost every organ system. So when you say like, is it a disease that of the mind? Is it a physical disease? It actually touches just about all organs. So we know that obesity is associated with poor mental health. So it can be a factor in mood disorders. It's also associated with things like ADHD and developmental disorders. We know it can cause mechanical problems. So arthritis, back pain, urinary incontinence, sleep apnea. It can cause metabolic disease, like heart disease, type 2 diabetes, fatty liver, as well as a number of cancers, like endometrial and colorectal. So it's a disease because it is when the excess fat tissue is causing impairment to health, and it can cause impairment to so many different systems. Okay, so let's sort of switch gears a bit and talk about the treatment of obesity Mm -hmm. and how doctors tend to treat it. Do they look at it as a, as a disease which is primarily regulated by the brain, or are they still treating it as sort of like calories in, calories out? So this is a tough question, because if you're talking about most physicians, yeah. my unfortunate answer is that most physicians are still probably in the calories in, calories out camp. And that is really a reflection of the lack of education in our medical system around obesity until very, very recently. So I'm talking the last two years. Like, there was no discussion of obesity management in medical school or residency until the last year, year and a half, two years, maybe. And so while we now understand a lot more about obesity as a disease, we still have a lot of work to do in educating our healthcare community, as well as society at large. However, the good news is that there has been an increase in the interest in the medical community around treating obesity as a chronic disease. And if we look at numbers of obesity physicians from 2017 until now, the number of board-certified obesity doctors has actually tripled. And so I think that shows us there's increasing awareness, there's an increased interest in getting this right and really treating our patients properly. So if it's a disease that's primarily regulated by the brain, why do you think it's, like obesity is so prevalent now? Because I think, yeah. if, I, I think if we look back 20 years, 30 years, we wouldn't have the same levels of obesity amongst the population. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you're, and you're absolutely right. Like that is, that is what the data shows. So this is a great question. And it's logical because it's like, well, our brains haven't changed that much. So what's happened, right? Yeah. And that's, that's the fact. Our brains have not changed that much in thousands of years. So what we have is this very ancient brain that has adapted to an environment where food was scarce. And in order to get that food, we had to expend energy. So imagine you had to go out and you had to forage for the berries that you were going to eat, or you had to spend all day like tracking down an animal and hunting it and then skinning it and then cooking that animal for meat. So that was going to take you energy, right? So our brain evolved like to be that way. Right. And our brain also has three very important survival instincts that stem from an area called the limbic system. And this is a subconscious part of the brain. So it's not something that we're aware of, but our brain is designed to number one, avoid danger. So it tries to keep us safe in our cave where there's no predators. Number two, seek pleasure. So things that help us survive as a human species, like reproduction and eating, pleasurable activities, and then do what requires the least amount of effort. So if you think about that, really, we are kind of biologically wired to eat more food and move less, expend less energy. And that works when food is scarce. But it does not work in today's obesogenic environment where foods are engineered to hijack our brain to make us crave more and want more so we overeat. And it's easily accessible with the push of a button on our Uber Eats app 
right? So that's the reason why we see obesity increasing is we have this very powerful and amazing brain, but it's encountering this new environment that favors overeating and undermoving. And on top of that, our brain is wired to prevent fat loss because in the setting of food scarcity, fat loss would mean death by starvation. So all of that is why now we're seeing the obesity epidemic that we're seeing in the Western world. So if obesity is a chronic illness and we are wired the way you say we're wired, what is the role for lifestyle decisions? So, for example, the decision to exercise. To me, there's a logical connection, right? Like if we're not doing the hunting and foraging that we used to do, we should be doing some sort of activity that approximates the energy that you expend to mm-hmm. hunting, hunt and gather. Do you uh, agree with that? A hundred percent. Human beings are designed to move. Our bodies are amazing. We are designed to move our bodies and we're not supposed to be sitting in front of a desk all day long. It's just not what we're wired for. And so I think that we absolutely still need to be talking about creating our healthiest lives and what can we do every day to care for our bodies, right? And if you think about it, a lot of chronic diseases are impacted by our lifestyle choices and health habits. You know, if you think about type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, even lung cancer, right? All of those are chronic diseases. We all acknowledge that they're chronic diseases. There's no argument about that the way there is about obesity. And there's lifestyle choices that are important, and sometimes we also use medical treatment. So it's not like an either-or situation. I think it's an and situation. And so I think when we're talking about obesity as a chronic disease, that does not equate to, and therefore you have to take a pill or undergo surgery to treat it. It means we recognize that there's a lot of different factors involved in the development of obesity, some within our control, some outside, and we need to optimize our health habits. And for some people, that also means they might need a little bit more. They might need some medical treatment, whether that's medical in the form of medications or surgical. And I think, you know, if we just kind of take a step back and, like, look bigger picture, my personal view, and I think this aligns with what, what you share, too, is that lifestyle choices and health habits are for everyone. Regardless of your health status, every single one of us needs to prioritize our health habits. Um, And notice, like I said, prioritizing, because in our society, most of us live on autopilot all day long. And by default, as I said earlier, we eat more, we exercise less. And I'll add to that, we don't sleep enough and we are overstressed. So unless we make health a priority, it is not what happens by default, especially with aging. Yeah. And and it's all interconnected, right? Like a, a good night's sleep means you can do more. Exercising means you have a better good night's sleep, you know, all those things. Yes, let's, absolutely. Let's you feel better when you eat well, too, right? Like, no 100%. one feels good when they're eating fast food. Well, they do in the moment. That's the problem, right? I oh, mean, that I, instant hit of pleasure. Yeah. Right? Like the endorphins. Let me tell you something. If I have gelato or if I have a, a piece of pizza, I really enjoy that gelato and that pizza in the moment. It only makes me feel bad later. That's the thing. That, that's why I call, it a, I call it a false pleasure because it gives you pleasure in the moment, because, but it comes with a pretty hefty price tag. Yeah, 100%. And it makes you feel unwell afterwards. And then for some, like that, you know, if you do this repetitively, then that leads to health consequences. So I agree with you. There's instant pleasure, but not long term. Let's talk about the the mental aspects of obesity, which I find really interesting, and we probably haven't discussed enough on the show. There's a stigma to being overweight, right? And, And we should discuss how that stigma impacts the ability to deal with being overweight. What are your thoughts on that? We actually have data around this. So when people with obesity experience stigma from their healthcare provider, there's data that shows that they don't go to medical appointments as frequently. They don't go and get, you know, routine checkups or cancer checkups. They they don't abide by any recommendations from their, their physician. So it's actually impairing medical care. That's number one. But also stigma and bias often the result of that is the emotion of shame. Yeah. And if you think about how we act when we're feeling ashamed as human beings, we tend to hide 
It makes people feel small. We feel unseen or embarrassed. And when we are feeling those emotions, we do not engage in positive behaviors, right? We're less likely to do the things that are going to be beneficial. And so I think one of the things I hear a lot from people is like they lose motivation over time. Well, what does that mean? Like motivation is like a feeling that you have. And the opposite of that is you start having some negative emotions, right? Maybe you feel um, discouraged, you feel disappointed, you feel ashamed about your weight. And when those emotions enter in, then what do we do? We tend to eat more. We don't exercise as much. We don't take care of ourselves. And so there are real impacts when when we have ongoing bias and stigma that actually disempower people and make people take actions that make them go further away from the goals that they have and the people that they want to be and how they want to show up. Okay. So, so my next question kind of ties into that. And that is if we're conceiving obesity as having a mental health component or, you know, that a large component of it may be driven by mental health, what are some of the tools that we can use to assist in dealing with this disease? I think when we talk about mental health, sometimes what we're thinking is conscious brain. Yeah. And when we talk about obesity, we're actually talking about subconscious parts of the brain. So there's three layers of the appetite system, and two of those are subconscious. So when I talk about the limbic system and then also the control of energy in, energy out, which is our hypothalamus, those two parts of the brain are not conscious. So we can't do any sort of psychological or cognitive intervention on those two areas. The third part of the brain is our executive function. So that's the front part of our brain. That's where we make logical decisions. We plan for our future. That's the conscious part that we can actually access, and that's where the psychological tools can be really helpful. So, for example, if you have a long history of dieting, you may have some learned helplessness and you may have a lot of beliefs like, well, I can't do this anyway, nothing ever works. And when you think like that, right, that's, again, going to create some negative emotions. And from our emotions, we take action. That's kind of basic CBT. So we're not going to take great action if we have these beliefs that nothing's going to work. I've tried everything. If you have a long history of like restricting and then you feel FOMO and then you start binging and then you feel terrible because you've just eaten, which I see in a lot of people, you may have developed disordered eating as a result. So we have to work on healing that. So that's where some of the cognitive interventions can come in. And even, you know, you mentioned mindfulness. Mindfulness is a really powerful tool for a lot of people, especially if you're someone who kind of overeats because you're just mindlessly snacking in front of Netflix. You don't even enjoy the foods that you're eating because you eat them so quickly because you're kind of embarrassed that you're eating them. So kind of slowing things down and bringing in mindfulness can actually help enjoy the food more and eat less. Fantastic. Well, this has all been tremendously helpful, and it it certainly caused me to sort of rethink my approach to health and wellness. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. That was Dr. Sasha High. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss our diminishing attention spans on the tonic. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy Program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today. If you're looking for premium natural products, choose New Roots Herbal. Proudly Canadian and family-owned for over 35 years. What really sets them apart is their dedication to quality, 
They source only the highest quality ingredients and test each one in a state-of-the-art ISO-accredited lab. You get the purity and potency you expect. Available exclusively at fine health food stores. To learn more or find a store near you, visit NewRootsHerbal.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. David Nelson is invited faculty at the Nova Institute of Health of People, Places, and Planet, located in Baltimore, Maryland. He attended the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine, is a health food retail and wellness service business owner, and he's written numerous academic articles. His latest establishes the importance of the acid-alkaline balance of the foods that we eat. He lives in Woodstock with his family, and he's a frequent guest on this show. Welcome back, David. How are you doing, man? Great, Jamie. I always love being on here. We have great conversations. Conversations, and I hope that your listeners always take away something that's actionable that they can use today. Yeah, well, I hope they're paying attention, which is <laughs> which is what we're going to be talking about today. And I have to get on my soapbox here because I've been noticing something in myself, and I'm you know I'm wondering if it's a greater phenomenon. So we get the New York Times, the Sunday Times, and you know it's known for being sort of dense. The articles are very long, and. I found myself, and I used to be a lawyer, so like reading long documents was like a breeze for me. Right, right. But but I find myself struggling with longer articles. I find Mm -hmm. like mid-article, I have to reread paragraphs, or I find myself skipping ahead, almost scanning the document till I get to the end. And I've realized that my attention span isn't what it used to be. And I'm still in my 50s. So I'm wondering, is this just me? Or is this a phenomenon that's affecting everybody? What do you think? Well, let's go to the data, because I think you and I, you know, love poking into the data. This started to become part of the conversation in the 80s and the 90s. By 2000, when they did the studies, as you know, uh, where I think you you know, normally its average attention span decreased from 12 seconds to 8. So when you look at that, that's actually a substantial decline in 15 years. That was from 2000 to 2015. People report more distraction and an inability to single task for a longer period of time. So is it just you or are all of our attention spans getting shorter? I also find my own attention span getting shorter, and I also am required to read long documents. So it would be academic studies that might be 10 pages with 100 to 200 references where you have to keep multiple pieces of information in your mind at the same time as you interact with a document. And sometimes I have to put it down or I need to have a pen there so that I can make notes and refer back to them. So I do really know what you're talking about. And so I think, yes, our attention spans have definitely decreased. So why is that? I mean, like, what's different now? What's going on? I think we have a couple things going on. And I think one of them, it's related to lifestyle and it's it's related to lifestyle. So let me go through it. We have more information coming at us ever before than ever in history. So that's one. So our information processing centers through our sensory matrix of, of our brains and our bodies, it's almost getting overloaded in a sense. And we haven't adapted to that overload yet. Number two, because there's so much information, we have to multitask all the time. The phone, the car, this thing, you got your satellite, your phone, everything, but people texting, whatever. There was a time growing up, like I was born in 1974, so I remember a time when the house was quiet and there was no bells and whistles. And the only bell and whistle you ever heard was the phone ringing, which you went over and picked up and answered the phone. 
Maybe you had a small black and white or color TV that you were watching, but that was about it. Now we got smart homes, smart fridges, smart microwaves. We got this. We can tell things, turn lights on, do that. Somebody's texting. We can FaceTime here and there and everywhere. We can get access to any information we want. But the problem is it's a flood. And the brain says, well, what do you want me to do with this? Like, I'm drinking from a fire hose here, and I really don't, I don't have the capacity to have this much information. So we have a decline in our ability to interact with that. And we have less practice on sustaining focus on one task due to that information overload in the multitasking environments that we're all in. It's everything you've said, but I think there's actually something, another factor that's impacting it as well. Mm. And that is our expectations with respect to information, yeah. right? It yeah. used to, and I'll give you a tangible example. You used to get the newspaper and to check the baseball scores before the mm-hmm. internet, right? To find out how the team did, okay? Mm-hmm. And you were totally okay with finding out the next morning whether the Blue Jays won or lost if you weren't, you know, if you weren't watching the game. Right. And if it was on the West Coast and it was a late game, you knew it might take two days to get that information. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, that's ridiculous now, right? Like, if you want to know the scores, you can go online and find out, like, in the moment, right? Like, because it's all there. It's But that's just illustrative of every piece of information that we may desire to have. It's instantaneous. Mm -hmm. So it's not just the information itself. It's our anticipation of the information and how much we'll put up with in order to get that information, which I think is a lot less. Everybody wants to know everything immediately. Right? Like yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And, you know, we talked about ultra-processed food the last time we talked, I think back in, yeah. in uh, late August, early September. And this is the thing about, about food and, and consumption of information. Like, we don't want to take the time to make the meal because we're busy, but we're also busy, so we want to check the baseball or, or football score today, and we want to know it instantaneously because we've been, our attentions have been cultivated in that manner over the last 30 years or more. I agree. And I think it's I think it's problematic because uh, there's a lot of complicated issues out there. And I feel like people really aren't terribly engaged in being informed about those things. Rather, they just kind of want the headline and they'll extrapolate what that headline means without actually turning their mind to it. Saying this like this is I'm going to say shallow thinking. Do you like that phrase? Yeah, I, I really think there's a lot of shallow thinkers over there. And they just, you know, because someone will comment on a headline on some social media platform, but they clearly haven't read the article, like clearly. Well, you know, it's our fault in media, though, right? Because we write these headlines that are meant to draw people in, but they're serving a different purpose now. The headlines are the thing. So if you are misleading in your headline or if the headline doesn't jibe with the content, you have a whole cohort of people that will never know, like never know. that's, That's correct. Assume they do. Okay. To me, it's just a terrible situation. I, I think we have like the, the lack of information, and people have they have so much license and ability through the their voting and who what they consume and what they do and how they conduct themselves as human beings, and yet everybody could use a concierge just kind of telling them what's important. In my view, I, I don't even know where we begin, but let, let let's talk about maybe what we can do to do a better job of concentrating and expanding our intention span when everything else is contracting it. What can we do, David? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and your question was, what can we do? This is what we can do. So we can't change the way right yet social media gives us whatever it gives us. We can't change the way that this information overload happens. So how do I remodel my life? Here's what I think we need to do, and this is what I'm doing personally. And I'll let you know, we say we do this in a year, I'll tell you if my attention span's getting better. Okay. Mindfulness and meditation, my friend, and nature. 
and exercise. One, two, three. Yep. These seem to be critical. And then I got another one here, so I'm going to throw it in there. Everybody's heard this next thing that I'm going to say, but let's focus on these three first. Meditation has absolutely been shown in the, in the magic numbers, 20 minutes. Meditation has been shown to decrease amygdala tone in the brain. That's the limbic center, the emotional processing center. When you decrease the tone there, the other areas of the brain have more capacity to process information. Nature seems to harmonize the brain's ability, and it's a very calming environment. And nature itself doesn't seem to cause sensory overload. It causes sensory awe. And the awe has a calming effect not only on your brain, but your microbiome's plasticity too, which the two are linked. That's the gut-brain axis connection. The third one's exercise. Exercise has the ability. So this is, this is John Ratty from Harvard. He wrote a book called Spark. Kids that did very poorly and had poor attention spans and were basically failing in school, he said, okay, you know what we're going to do? We're going to make an exercise program called early hour. You show up at school, you exercise for 30 minutes, and then you go and you do your hardest class. Everybody's grades went up. Every single person in the class, their grades went up. Even people who were in the 20 and 30%, everybody went above 50. Wow. And the fourth thing, digital detox. Yep. We must have times where our phones and digital devices are not hijacking our attention. And we must do it, especially at night before we go to bed, because it causes pre-sleep arousal by 90 minutes, and it totally interrupts the brain's ability to engage in the restorative processes of REM sleep, deep sleep, and that wakefulness. When you wake up, you feel refreshed. That's why we don't really feel refreshed in the morning. So that's kind of like we need to turn those things off, get back to single tasks of reading a book, have face-to-face conversations, and avoid as much multitasking as we can do. Get outside and exercise. Like These things are necessary for us to regain our attention spans. And it's especially important for kids. Yeah. I mean, I'm incorporating some of this. I really, you know, I should do more mindfulness exercises, but what I'm, what I find personally, we have at all meals, nobody's allowed to be on their devices. And we amazing. I love it. And when we have Friday night dinners where my kids, God bless them, still enjoy our company, (laughs) come and we have real conversations at those times, as opposed to just sort of like eating and rushing off. That's necessary. I love it. I do this thing and they call, my kids call me on it. It's when I zone out. So I'm a, I love puzzles and I, I will do crossword puzzles and word puzzles and number puzzles. And I totally zone out. Like you could be talking to me and I will not hear you. I am so focused on those puzzles. I don't know if that's the same thing as reading a book, but for me, it's my little escape and I actually lose track of time when I do the puzzles. It would be the same as reading a book because that's a single task and you're, you're training your brain to focus attention and to ignore distractions. That's exactly what you're doing. I want to talk about this more. You know, every year I kind of take up the gauntlet and I try and express something that I think is actually crucial to our overall health. And I, I think this, this is a big one. This is one I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to be following up on. Yeah, well, I hope that we do because maybe the next one we do is how to pay attention to your health. Let's do that for next month. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Love being here, Jamie. Thanks for having me. That was Dr. David Nelson, ND. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. 
Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Is fasting part of your health and wellness routine? Lifelong Labs can give you the tools you need to start fasting. Fasting can improve your health, your mind, and your body. Join the Lifelong Labs community now and learn more about fasting. For more information, visit lifelonglabs.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Shauna Linson is a dietitian and nutritionist. She's a program developer and nutrition leader at Wellspring Cancer Support Network and enjoys seeing clients virtually and doing corporate wellness lectures. She runs practical cooking demonstrations that combine her scientific knowledge with culinary education. Her demonstrations are unique, informative, delicious, and lots of fun. And you can find a list of her nutrition classes and recipes at shaunalinson.com. Welcome back to the show, my friend. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Jamie. How are you? Good. So I thought, and I'm asking for a friend here, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. (laughs) There are people, how shall I put this, have a lot of gas, okay? And some of those people who have gas wonder, what is the cause of all this gas and what can I do about it? Can you help us? Can you help us today? (laughs) It's it's not the most fun topic to discuss. I disagree. I You think it's fun? <laughs> well, it, we'll, we'll find out. Uh, so, obviously, you know, your lens is as a dietitian. So, why don't we just start there? What is in the diet that could be causing gas? I think I know the answer to this, but, but go ahead. Lots of things. So, it's a very complex topic because people normally think if I have gas, what did I eat? Right? Yeah, like, exactly. Is, is it right. cause and effect? So there are certain foods that are gas promoters. So like the first one that comes to my mind would be like beans and legumes and lentils, that type of thing. So there are ways, and also if you really want to do a deep dive, some people who are intolerant to foods like lactose, for instance, get a lot of gas, but there, there are ways we can get around that. Okay. Like, to my mind, I thought cruciferous vegetables can tend towards gassiness. Is that true? Or am I wrong? Yeah. So vegetables in general have fiber. Right. And so vegetables and fruit have fiber. If we don't, if our bodies don't digest the fibers well, the bacteria will, once the fiber, the non-digestive fiber goes into your lower part of your intestine, like your colon, your large intestine, Mm -hmm. the bacteria have a heyday on it. And that's what actually produces gas is the fermentable fiber that the bacteria use as food. Okay, so and then it produces gas. All right, but here we are promoting eat your fiber, eat your mm-hmm. eat your veggies, eat your fruit, right? Like come on, let's be honest. You've been on my show many times and it's not just you. It's it's most of my guests are, are are taught, you know, in order to be healthy, you've got to eat you you, you want to eat legumes, you want to eat vegetables and you want to eat fruit. So a lot of us who are eating well are gassy. Maybe that's, maybe that's a sign you're eating right. 
or is it, it? It's true. It's a very funny topic because we we think that we're gassy, we're not eating well, but typically people who eat a lot of fruits and vegetables and plant-based products do have gas. But the good news is the more you eat, the more your body will get used to it and hopefully the less gas you'll produce in the long run. Okay, but what if that isn't true? Like, what if you're, what if I'm just hypothetically positing a man who's in his mid-50s who's been eating lots of fiber, has oatmeal for breakfast every morning, let's say, and has, you know, beans and vegetables, and his body still has trouble breaking it down, I guess, in the stomach and small intestine. Are there other factors that might be causing this? Definitely. So we can't just look at and isolate food. We have to look at things like movement. So the more you move, the more you do standing up movement, Mm -hmm. the more your body will release the gas. And that's more to release the gas pain, right? But there are other things like chewing your food really well, eating slowly, um, not gulping drinks, not using a straw, avoiding things like chewing gum and candy, carbonated drinks tend to cause lots of gas and gas pain. And so reducing your intake of carbonated drinks. And a biggie that people don't realize are additives. So things like if you eat granola bars and the companies add in things like inulin Mm -hmm. or chicory root fiber, they're really big culprits in terms of producing gas. Well, those, those are the types of things that make you feel full too, right? And yeah. so like it's, it's a double-edged sword, right? Like you're eating some of this food to yeah. sate your appetite, but by the same token, they're filling you full of gas. And some of the, the tips, correct me if I'm wrong, like eating too quickly, gulping, sipping with a straw, those are all related and carbonated drinks are, are about getting more air into your tummy, right? Like. Exactly, yeah. So there's there's really two types of gas. There's the gas, and I'm going to get very graphic here, yep. the gas that doesn't really smell like sulfur. Right. When you have gas that smells like sulfur, it means that bacteria have eaten, have produced the fermentation more or less. So it's kind of scientific. The gas that's just air and pain, I think, is due to, you know, gulping the air, that type of thing. So there are two kind of types of gas, Yeah, if you I, think about it. Yeah, I mean, I guess from an environmental perspective, <laughs> the ones the ones that don't smell as bad, I suppose, aren't are more benign than the ones that are offending everybody, right? Like if you happen, exactly. if you happen to not have enough control. So... Off the top, you were talking about the inability of the stomach and smaller intestine to fully digest the foods that are coming down the pipe, as it were, right? So Mm -hmm. it it gets to the large intestine where the bacteria there goes to town. Is there a way to improve the digestion in your stomach? Like, would would a digestive enzyme help the situation? Or are there other things that you could take that would help with that issue? Yeah, and it well, it depends on the food. So if you're doing something like drinking milk and you're lactose intolerant, right. a lactase enzyme would help break down the sugars that aren't broken down that cause the gas. With beans, there's the beano enzyme, which breaks down the molecules, which are called oligosaccharides. The beano would break that down because they're actually kind of medium chain molecules that don't get broken down. 
Or the other thing you can do is drink lots of fluids to make sure that everything kind of flows down your pipes, you know, at a good rate. Because mm-hmm. if you're eating lots of fiber and you're not drinking fluids, you're actually doing yourself a disservice. Well, I mean, you're going to get backups, for lack of a better mm-hmm. word, right? Like you're going to be highly constipated. if you're Even with the fiber, if you're not drinking enough water, you're going to have problems for sure, Oh, it's right? terrible, yeah, to eat fiber and not drink the fluid. And if you're sedentary, yeah. you're not moving everything down as well. So there are kind of the um, physical factors as well, as well as emotional factors. Like we can even get into that with irritable bowel. Mm-hmm. If you're not relaxed, you're, you know, tensing up, that can promote bad digestion. Okay, so let's say an individual is gassy. Okay, and we, we've sort of discussed some of the things in terms of food and water intake. What else can we do to alleviate what might be painful or otherwise unpleasant? What are some of your tips? So a really good tip is a warm compress and, you know, relaxing and putting the warm compress where the gas is trapped. That could help or taking a warm bath. Other things are relaxation, meditation that really helps you relax. Think about you have a a long day at work, you come home and you feel very gassy and then you relax and you relieve the gas. So that type of thing, like relaxing, meditation, decreasing your stress, other things, culinary things, you could drink some peppermint tea. That's actually been proven to help your digestion. Chamomile tea, kind of the relaxing types of teas can also help. So, sorry, I'm a bit confused. How does relaxing help with the issue of gas? It just makes it less painful or it It stops you from being gassy? Yeah, so if you're tense, you're kind of like you're you're holding on to kind of the stress and then you relax, you're relaxing physically, your intestine will release some or your your large intestine will help release the gas. Okay. Does that make sense? I suppose, yeah. Yeah. No, no, I'm asking. Yeah, Yeah. so meditation, stress-reducing exercises, that type of thing. And even doctors will say, like, crouch over and, you know, lots of different physical techniques, like put your legs higher up. That will, like, compress your intestine. Okay, so essentially what you're suggesting is sort of squeezing. Remember baby massage? Yeah. (laughs) Like from years and years ago? Sure. It's kind of like that like squeezing and just to relieve the gas pain, kind of massaging that area, putting like a warm compress. It actually works. Okay. Well, that's all fantastic advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. And thanks for having me. So next time you're on, what would you like to discuss? Let's discuss how our diets should change as we age. Sounds like a plan. That was Shauna Lindzen. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss pelvic floor dysfunction on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. 
Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Dr. Sinead Dufour is passionate about pelvic health. As Associate Clinical Professor in the Faculty of Health Science at McMaster University and the lead author of two recent clinical practice guidelines in conjunction with the Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists of Canada, she's a knowledgeable advocate for conservative approaches to prevent and manage pelvic floor dysfunction. When she isn't teaching future doctors and leaders in pelvic health, she's busy researching treating women who need her help and sitting on multiple national and international advisory boards all the while raising her twins. Dr. DeFour believes that women deserve choice on how they seek and receive care. She believes that innovation to collaborate across methods and technology create important solutions for enhanced pelvic health. Welcome to the show, doctor. How are you? I'm good, Jamie. Thanks so much for having me. So what is pelvic floor dysfunction and how would our listeners know if they have it? Yeah. Absolutely. So the pelvic floor is a group of muscles at the bottom of our pelvis that's responsible for a lot of different jobs in the body, maintaining our continence, supporting our pelvic organs. They're involved in sexual function. And so pelvic floor dysfunction really is an umbrella term that defines conditions that are characterized by any type of dysfunction in the pelvic floor. So the most common pelvic floor conditions are urinary incontinence and pelvic organ prolapse. However, there are other symptoms of pelvic floor dysfunction. So people might be clued in to if they have, you know, an issue with their pelvic floor, if they're having any leaking of urine when they don't want to, if they are feeling a sensation of sort of pressure or heaviness down into their pelvis, if they're having any sort of pelvic pain, and if they're experiencing any issues with sexual function, all of these things might clue you in to your pelvic floor not working as optimally as it should and wanting to sort of get some help with that. Okay, so to be clear, which are the pelvic organs that you're talking about? So the pelvic organs for women, and certainly pelvic organ prolapse is more common in women, is the bladder, which is at the front, the uterus, which is in the middle, and then the rectum at the back. And then, of course, for males, they don't have the uterus. It's the bladder and the rectum. But pelvic organ prolapse is certainly much more common of an issue with women. Okay, so men do experience pelvic floor dysfunction then? Men absolutely experience pelvic floor dysfunction, not the prolapse component as much, but certainly, I mean, anyone with a pelvic floor can run into a situation where these muscles aren't working as well. So children can have these issues and men can have these issues. And we see, I mean, across the lifespan, 50% of women will have issues with urinary incontinence or urinary leakage across the lifespan. But by the time a woman is, you know, in her older ages, we're talking about more like 75%. Men, it's about 30% across the lifespan. And what I will say about men is, you know, prostate health is a piece that kind of intersects with pelvic health for men. Yep. 
So oftentimes, even treatments for prostate cancer, for example, surgeries, you know, this can lead us into a situation where then the pelvic floor isn't working as well, and um, a number of these dysfunctions can result. Okay, and, and for men, does incontinence manifest for men as well with their bladder? Yes, absolutely. That's probably, you know, the main dysfunction would be urinary incontinence or erectile dysfunction. Those would probably be the two big ones for men. So I would imagine that a lot of people are reticent to sort of talk about these issues. Is that the case? Is that what you find? Absolutely. I mean, that's in fact one of the barriers to care, to be honest with you, Jamie. And it's one of the most frustrating things about pelvic floor dysfunction because we're dealing with these really common issues that actually effective and excellent solutions are quite non-invasive and fairly straightforward. But there's a whole bunch of barriers to getting this care, and that is one of them. One of them being that people are feeling a little bit hesitant to come forward for care, just given the intimate nature of these issues. But there's other ones, too. I mean, there's a lot of beliefs across the population, and this has been well-researched, that people think that some of these symptoms are normal. So, for example, for women, after they've had children or they've gone through menopause, you know, it's a very common belief that women should just be expected to be leaking urine. They should just be expected expecting to have their organs descending down into their vaginal space or out of their vagina, that these are to be expected. There also is a lack of awareness in terms of how effective what we call conservative care, so non-medicine, non-surgery care, how effective these care options are. You know, there's very few areas in the space of physical therapy, and I clinically practice as a pelvic health physiotherapist. There's very few spaces in my profession of physiotherapy that we have what we call level 1A evidence. So top, 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 non-disputable evidence to cure issues. And we actually have that for urinary incontinence, you know, with these really basic strategies that can be enacted by pelvic health physios. But a lot of people don't know that. People think that, you know, medications or surgeries or really uncomfortable, you know, internal exams or, you know, internal types of treatments that people aren't interested in, people assume that, you know, this is what they would have to get. So, yeah, there is definitely a gap between the people who have these issues and actually getting care. We see that help-seeking is actually only 25% of people with these issues. And typically, people will go to their family physicians first as that first contact point in the healthcare system. And unfortunately, family physicians aren't sort of set up well to navigate these issues. Family physicians know a little bit about a lot of things, and they don't know a lot about this particular issue. So even sometimes people, you know, trying to go that route, and that's only 25% of people, will hit a bit of a roadblock. So certainly, you know, awareness is increasing, but we want to get the word out that this is a really common problem with a very straightforward solution. And my understanding is if you don't deal with it soon, you, you know, your, your choices do limit it, right? Like, so if, if you have this issue and you don't deal with it, it can get to the point where, for example, you have to have some sort of intervention, like putting a mesh in, right? Where, where, where surgery is required, right? 
absolutely. I mean, for, from the perspective, for example, of even pelvic organ prolapse, you know, this is an issue that if we can get on top of it early, these very straightforward tools can completely ameliorate the issue. But if we don't, and that individual kind of goes on, you know, with not proper support for these organs and carrying on with habitual behaviors that are making the situation worse, then absolutely, we will compound the situation. So, you know, it's like anything else. The sooner we can get on track, the better. Okay. So, when we're talking about sort of some of the things we can do, something comes to mind, and maybe you can tell me if I'm totally ignorant or if it makes sense, but are Kegel exercises relevant to what we're discussing, or is is that something else? Yeah. So, Kegel exercises are part of the solution for sure. Kegel exercises, unfortunately, are misunderstood by a lot of the public. Kegel exercises really are pelvic floor contractions to the maximum and repeated. And the goal specifically of Kegel exercises is strengthening. And the assumption always is that, you know, pelvic floor dysfunction is a weakness problem. And so that actually isn't correct. So the term we prefer to use is pelvic floor muscle training, which can incorporate strengthening of the pelvic floor, which would, you know, you could nickname that Kegels. But really, pelvic floor muscle training or developing excellent fitness capacity in your pelvic floor is very important. And and that's going to look a little bit different for every single person. And each person also needs more than just pelvic floor muscle training, usually, to um, completely correct these issues. Okay, so we, ha- we actually have time for one last question, and that is, if our listeners were interested in strengthening their pelvic floor muscles, what should they consider when looking for help? Well, really, what they should consider is honestly going to a place where they specialize in pelvic floor muscle dysfunction and integrate all the top evidence care strategies. And so, you know, I'm fortunate to partner with Eurospot. And Eurospot has really taken Canada by storm because, you know, they specialize in pelvic floor dysfunction. They use a variety of evidence-based tools, integrating pelvic health physios. So that component of the treatment is covered by your benefits. But, you know, they use technology to give boost to the pelvic floor muscle training component of the care. They use um, health coaching and education by regulated health professionals to make sure the care is tailored and adapted. They use a care model that does not involve someone having to do anything internal or uncomfortable in their body. Everyone remains fully clothed with their interactions with the care providers, as well as the exciting technology that is used to help develop fitness capacity in the pelvic floor. So I would really say Eurospot is the solution to this pervasive problem. And the results at Eurospot have blown me and my PT team away, quite literally. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Sasha High, Dr. David Nelson, ND, Shauna Lindzen, and Dr. Sinead Dufour. Thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The fall issue is now available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. 
or you can visit our website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.